Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with the historian Heidi Torek about her impressive new book called News from Germany, The Competition to Control World Communications, 1900 to 1945. It was published just this year by Harvard University Press. I'm especially excited that I'll be speaking with Heidi today. Heidi was a mentor of mine during my MA at the University of British Columbia. And in the years since, she has continued to be someone whom I rely on. So I'm just thrilled to see the book come out in all its glory and that she's a guest on my podcast. Heidi's book examines the history of communications in Germany and the world in the first half of the 20th century. She moves across multiple political regimes and shows how German elites in both politics and business fought over the regulation of information at home and sought to use information to expand Germany's power abroad. In our current moment, marred by disinformation campaigns and media monopolies, news from Germany is an important reflection on the long history of these phenomena. In fact, the book reveals that false news was a political strategy used by a Weimar version of Rupert Murdoch. The book also reveals how people have long debated the fraught relationship between communications and democracy. The book will interest international historians, German historians, business historians, and communication scholars alike. Our conversation will only be able to scratch the surface of the book's contents, but I hope you'll enjoy our interview. I'm speaking with Heidi Twerk about her fascinating new book, News from Germany, Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Heidi. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dexter. Absolutely. Um, And so we always begin our show with a question about how you ended up becoming interested in this topic. How did you become a historian of communications? It's a great question. Actually, I became a historian of communications and specifically of news agencies, which is the businesses that I'm writing about, through a realization of my own ignorance of how news really worked. So a long time ago, back when I was doing the the master's portion of my PhD, I I wrote a paper about newspaper coverage of um, the Austro-Prussian War of 1866. And I was writing this paper and I was looking at the different newspaper reactions to this war. And then I asked myself, really towards the end of the paper, a pretty fundamental question, which was, where were the newspapers getting their news from? And I realized that newspapers in Prussia and Austria, so the two different sides of this conflict, were actually both getting a lot of their news from the same news agency, a French news agency called Agence Avas. And I thought, oh my goodness, this actually completely changes my analysis of this content because I was just analyzing newspaper content as content. And then I realized, hang on, but they're both getting the news to opposing sides of a war from the same place, a French news agency. So I started to look into these weird businesses, news agencies, and discovered that they were a really fundamental part of how news is actually created. So that's how I ended up uh, with this topic and thinking much more about 
what are the networks behind the news that really control to a great extent the sorts of news that the people saw in newspapers. So I think it's a, it's a good lesson that many history projects actually emerge from one's realization of the things that you don't really know mm-hmm. <laughs> as you begin to pursue projects. It's very Socratic. Uh, what was the response to your decision to write your dissertation on the history of news? So I think in, initially there was some perplexity because when I began, the, the history of communications was, was absolutely a field, but, but most of the people who did it were in journalism schools, actually. And many of the people, at least in the US where I was doing my PhD, would work on perhaps the history of American communications. So initially, I have to say there was definitely quite a lot of skepticism when I would give presentations. I'd often go out, get questions like, history of news, does that matter? (laughs) And that has really changed. I mean, it's just been extraordinary to see how over the course of the last four or five years, particularly the last three years, that question has really gone away. And now it's much more, I think, a, a case of trying to explain through history communications as a factor we need to take seriously, but we also need to analyze in the same ways that we do politics, economics, culture, that we don't have either overinflated or underinflated claims for what the role of communications is so that we need to move away from the communications change nothing <laughs> and we also need to move away from the communications changed everything into a nuanced analysis of what communications could and couldn't do and that's part of what I'm trying to do in the book is show what did german elites think that they could achieve with communications networks and what actually ended up happening and what are the ways that we can really try and measure that concretely as historians the, the change seemed to happen really quickly uh, in terms of just like um, the idea that, his, that that news has a history. W- what accounts for the change among our peers? I think a lot of it has to do with contemporary politics. <laughs> a lot of it, ha- I think a lot of it has to do with contemporary politics, the 2016 election, right? And, and this sort of understanding that news actually does have an influence. And also, I think, uh, maybe a reassessment amongst many people that they might not speak about it in these ways, that, that perhaps news isn't just a form of soft power, as, as Joseph Nye would call it, but actually it had potentially much broader geopolitical consequences. And that's certainly something that, that I could see in the history that I was writing, was that it was very clear that German elites from the turn of the 20th century saw news as part of a way of achieving geopolitical goals, um, but also broader economic goals as well as cultural ones. So I think this broader historical interest in these questions has, to a certain extent, been influenced by contemporary politics as well. Hmm. So before we get into your book's arguments, something that I really want to discuss is the research that went into this book, because I don't think it can be stressed enough just how much archival research went into this book. <laughs> the, uh, the, the list of archives consulted uh, runs eight pages long, um, which is quite substantial. Um, can you share with listeners what the research experience was like? And perhaps do you have any aha moments from the archive? Oh, it's a really good question. You're right. I did go to a lot of archives in many different countries. So I went to 20, I think it's 20 archives, seven countries, six different languages. So even though the the book is called News from Germany, the subtitle also matters because it's a competition to control world communication. So it's really a history that tries to be 
both national in the sense of looking at why German elites try to control world communications, but I didn't want to stick in just Germany, but really to, to tell a national and an international history that looked at how this broader network functioned and how did other countries, how did other elites react to this uh, system that the Germans were trying to undermine. So I, I began by really spending a lot of time in German archives themselves. And even that was was quite a challenge because um, some uh, archival collections were destroyed at the end of World War II by Allied bombing. So there mm. wasn't just a neat bunch of files called news agencies. <laughs> so when I first went to the German archives, the federal archives in Berlin, I had asked, what about the files of news agencies? And they gave me two because <laughs> those are the wow. only ones that had the word um, Nachrichtenagenturen or news agencies in the title. I thought, uh-oh. Do I have a project? And then I just started looking. This is a really good lesson for anybody who's doing a first project. I just spent a week looking through every single catalog of every single ministry. So there's a wall of them in the Bundesarchiv, the Federal Archive in Berlin. I spent a whole week going through it and looking for everywhere that I could find files that were called press or media or something akin to that. And I spent a long time just going through all of them. And that's how I could really develop this story about German elite's interest in many, many different news agencies. So I could really show that there was across the board, many different ministries, different types of people, a deep interest in using news agencies to achieve these broader goals. So I began and then I looked at various other German archives as well to try and get not just the, the political, but also the military, um, industrial, etc. And then I branched out to looking at um, archives around uh, Europe, and in the United States as well. Um, and then theoretically, you know, there are other projects now I'm just sending an undergraduate actually this summer to China to look at Chinese newspapers to see whether the story that I could tell from um, the European languages I looked at about the amount of German news in Chinese, in Chinese newspapers in the 1930s, 1940s. Now she's going to look and see, is that actually reflected in the Chinese newspapers or are these overinflated claims? Um, so the the final thing to say about these archives is that uh, I did really want to do a project that was very multilingual and for um, German historians as well to do something that was not just looking at one set of borderlands, but trying to look at all of them. So the other archives include um, things in French, things in Polish, um, the stuff in Spanish, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to really try and make sure that I wasn't telling a story that was just what Germans were saying to me, but also what other archives and other elites were actually interpreting about German news. And it's how I found some of the, the most bizarre stuff I never expected, like J. Edgar Hoover getting obsessed with German news, which was not something I ever expected to find. <laughs> According to your acknowledgments, you even learned Polish specifically for this project. Somewhat, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's an impressive feat. Um, but w was there uh, a particular archive um, or even a particular document that um, elicited a, a sort of like an epiphany, um, like a sort of like a, a change of your assumptions? Mm. Oh, that's a really good question. I think I would say maybe not singular documents, but, but something that really became much clearer to me from the archives that I honestly hadn't expected was how much of an international story this was. And also the sorts of places that Germans were interested in. So this is not just a flat world, right? So although I use the word world in the, in the title, what I'm really trying to do in the book is show there was a very particular German vision of the places they wanted to reach in the world. And this was not everywhere. This really had a lot to do with where Germans were interested in reaching. So sometimes uh, Poland was not as important as places in Latin America, for example, or East Asia 
or former German colonies in Southwest Africa could be more important than uh, reaching certain people in uh, North America, for example. So the news agencies I came to see over time were actually not necessarily about controlling sort of classic spaces that we would think of as um, places that were global, but there was a really particular German vision of what the world they wanted to control through communications actually was and where it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the geography of your book is really, uh, really striking and in many ways unusual. Um, and it's something that I, uh, I really appreciated. A lot has changed since uh, the, the, uh, the time of your book um, or the, the period that you're covering in terms of um, communications infrastructure. And uh, it's, it's really easy to kind of project onto the past, um, you know, the internet and other, you know, like uh, modern communications technologies and infrastructures. I want to sort of start off with like what exactly communication looked like in the um, early parts of the 20th century. How would information flow, um, you know, internationally through, um, you know, news agencies or, um, you know, telegraphs or wireless? Like what, what exactly did it look like? So news agencies, which are the major firms that I look at over the course of this book, they, they emerge really in the, the mid-19th century. And one way to think about them quite simply is as news wholesalers. So they station foreign correspondents around the world, collect news, and then they distribute it to newspapers who are their retail clients who then decide how do they want to package it for their readers. So that's one sort of very simple explanation of thinking about news agencies. So let me then explain a little bit how the system actually functioned concretely. So the first major news agency that's created is in the 1830s. It's called Agence Avas. It's located in Paris. And then after the 1848-49 revolutions in the German lands, um, two men who flee end up in Paris. They work with uh, Agence Avas. And then after the revolutions are over, one of those men, Bernhard Wolf, goes back to Berlin and he founds Wolfstegrafsches Büro which becomes the the major German news agency. And then the second man, Julius Reuter, goes to Britain in advance of the first submarine cable between Britain and France in 1851, and he opens Reuter's telegram company. So the Charles Avas, who's the founder of Agence Avas, Bernhard Wolf and Julius Reuter all know each other. So they informally cooperate from the start because it's extremely expensive to station correspondence around the world. It's extremely expensive to send news through submarine telegraphy. It's really the beginnings of submarine cables. And so they decide to have an informal arrangement that becomes a formal cartel a few years later, where they divide the gathering of world news between them. So they divide up the world based upon the empires each of the countries they're based in possesses, and then territories they think of as sort of culturally or economically connected to the place where they are. So that means that Reuters and Havas because of the larger British and French empires, they control much more of the places where news is gathered. Then these three agencies exchange news between them and they supply it to their own clients. And this is a system that that lasts for a remarkably long time with pretty few changes, actually. So it begins in the mid-19th century and it lasts all the way until 1939. Uh, Anybody who is interested in cartels will know this is incredibly unusual because most cartels and things like steel and coal they'll last for five to seven years, whereas this one will last with renewals and a few changes for nearly 70 years, which tells us a lot, I think, about the 
um, the stickiness and the path dependency of communications networks. Hmm. So what happens is this cartel continues is two really sort of major changes. One is that the American Associated Press joins from 1893 to 1933. And the second is that after World War I, the German news agency Wolf is restricted to really only reporting on Germany. So that's the sort of basic story of news agencies. Newspapers will then pick that up. Most newspapers cannot afford foreign correspondence. So we tend as historians, of course, we look at the big newspapers. They're the ones that are digitized, the New York Times, the Times, etc. And many historians make the mistake of extrapolating from those newspapers as if that's what all newspapers were like. In fact, it was extremely rare to have newspapers that could afford foreign correspondence. The vast majority are getting their international news and often their national news as well from news agencies. And that then is what the Germans seek to control. It's news agencies. So they see this system from the turn of the 20th century as Germany seeks to become a global power, an imperial power. German elites of all political persuasions look at the cartel system that I've described and say, this is a system that boxes us in. So Germany has a big global imagination that they believe is not backed up by a communication system that can disseminate news from Germany around the world. And so the story of the book is a 45-year story in which many different German elites, whether they are liberal, right-wing, industrialists, journalists, academics, use news agencies to try and overturn this system for broader geopolitical, economic, and cultural goals. Wonderful. Uh, and you have uh, anticipated a few of my questions. Um, and so I'm going to ask you to sort of elaborate on it a little bit. Uh, so World War I is a bit of a turning point for your narrative. Um, it's a, a point where um, this, these ideas about controlling world communication um, start to really take shape in Germany. Uh, and some of this comes from the fact that Britain very quickly uh, snips many of Germany's cables and thereby cuts off Germany from uh, you know, information um, beyond Germany. And so German officials sort of see a technological means of bypassing this. They, they, they seek out a world wireless network. Those are their words. Um, can you say something about the German experience of World War I and what exactly their uh, world wireless network looked like? Mm, yeah, and I think one of one of the things that, that became clear to me in the book is that often World War One is portrayed as the, the turning point for communications history, right? Particularly the, these moments that you mentioned about the British cutting the cables, and and also as the moment when propaganda becomes the term that we know it today, when governments on both sides of the the war, Britain, the United States, Germany, all set up committees on public information or ministries of information, so really institutionalize some of the ways in which we, we now think about governments running propaganda or information networks. And one of the things that surprised me when I did the research is that World War I is really crucial, but it's more of an accelerator for German beliefs and investments than it is a total switch of policy. So what, what happens in World War I is that many German elites who had been concerned really from the 1890s onwards that the submarine cable system was something that was British-dominated and that the British would use their control over the cables to censor the content and that these cables would become part of warfare. Many German elites see World War I as the final evidence that what they had been saying before was correct because the British do indeed cut the cables. And the second thing that accelerates, as, as you rightly point out, is the belief in wireless telegraphy. So then there's no cables to be cut. The belief in wireless telegraphy is a way that 
Germans in particular can get news from Germany to the rest of the world, even during times of warfare. So there had been substantial investment in wireless for a couple of, well, basically about 15 years before World War I breaks out. So Kaiser Wilhelm II is actually pretty obsessed with new technologies. And together with the, the German Navy, which sees wireless as a way of coordinating moving ships on the sea for the first time, uh, the state actually intervenes in private enterprise. And in the early 1900s, pushes two competing private firms, uh, Siemens and Hausken AEG, uh, to create a joint uh, research and development subsidiary called Telefunken. And for the first eight years of its existence, basically 80% of the revenue that, that Telefunken is bringing in is from military and otherwise government contracts to pursue research and development in wireless. And a lot of those contracts then have to do with um, the German colonial office and other German ministries wanting to create what they see as an all-wireless network around the world that will connect the various German colonies. And this, prior to World War I, is seen as a competing vision of communications infrastructure to the British all-red line of cables around the world that's completed in 1902 with the final cable across the Pacific between uh, Vancouver and Australasia. Now, the, the German all-wireless network is finished just a couple of months before the outbreak of World War I. So it only operates quite briefly. That's why it's really not very well known. Then when World War I breaks out, the British cut the cables. For many German elites, they see this as a moment that just completely confirms what they had always feared. Communications infrastructures were going to be a part of warfare. It's also then confirmed by the fact that actually quite a lot of the early battles outside of Europe in World War I have to do with conquering German wireless stations. So the Battle of Bitterpacker, for example, in October 1914, not very well known by many people, but actually uh, it's uh, a battle for, with Australian forces wanting to take over a German wireless tower. Um, same in Southwest Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So when those towers are conquered, despite the many divisions amongst German politicians, military officials, industrialists, and so on, one thing they all agree on is as the war drags on, Germans now need to have a world wireless network. They need to have wireless towers that are very powerful, stationed in neutral territories around the world that can then disseminate news from Germany around the world. And so there's there's lots of spying, skullduggery as Germans send various people around the world to try and construct a wireless tower in China, which at that point is still neutral, and various other places. And it doesn't end up working out, but it's a really key moment in the book where what I'm trying to show is that these this belief in wireless continues. German visions of communications as a way to achieve broader goals continue, but that their vision of the world starts to evolve from one that is very much colonial to one that is a world based on wireless towers in quite different spaces. So I can show how even this concept of world is changing over the course of World War I itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that I was really struck by was uh, just how many things your book explains. Um, and so, you know, there's there are all these um, geopolitical um, uh, explanations, um, like the one that you are um, just elaborating on. Um, but then also just these um, other really interesting uh, facets of this history. Um, and one of those things is how German social scientists dominated communications research in the 30s and the 40s in North America and, uh, and other places. Um, you know, you have Paul Lazarsfield, you have um, the Frankfurt School, and then Habermas. And uh, you're able to kind of trace the, um, the origins of um, all this uh, communications research. Do you want to just say a little bit about that? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had, as a grad student, really been incredibly interested in intellectual history. So I did one of my master's fields with, with Peter Gordon, who's just a fantastic intellectual historian. So I had read so many of these um, intellectual thinkers, right, uh, Max Weber, etc., from a really different perspective. And then when I started this project, I realized that so many of those sociologists and other German intellectuals were actually really invested in communications. And that what I was able to do in the first chapter of the book was actually to put them back into that context. So quite frequently for intellectual historians, these, these people are doing different things. <laughs> so if you mm -hmm. ask a lot of scholars of Weber, they wouldn't necessarily think about him as somebody who cared about communications, but actually really very early on, so prior to World War I, um, Weber at an annual conference of sociologists calls for concrete study of the press. And that doesn't end up working out in quite the ways that, that he imagined, but it was the start of um, institutions that are founded from the middle of World War I onwards that, that really look at the press very concretely. And so what I try to explain then is to put these people back into their context, where actually German elites were in general really quite obsessed with and interested in what the role of news was and how it functioned. So everybody from Weber, who says that we should study um, the press, to um, Ferdinand Tunius, who's quite well known for his distinction between um, Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, so um, community and society, and the ways in which modernity creates a sort of atomized society rather than community. But he was also really obsessed with the concept of public opinion. And then, of course, we end up in the 30s with a lot of this being uh, transferred to the United States through emigre scholars like the Frankfurt School, um, but also Paul Lazarsfeld, who's really one of the major founders of communications research and quantified communications research or uh, public opinion surveys. And then in a sort of final irony of a lot of this, much of the way in which Germans then do public opinion measuring in West Germany after the war gets re-imported back <laughs> through people who had studied in the United States and then come back to Germany and bring a lot of those ideas with them. But it's a very, I would say, finally, a, a sort of different take on some people like Habermas. So rather than using um, Habermas's concept of the public sphere as a theoretical concept to underpin what I'm doing, um, instead, in the first chapter of the book, I embed him into that intellectual trajectory and give him a context of showing that there was he was actually building on really sort of 60 years of German scholars having a skepticism about whether the press was really something that was progressive or whether it was also something that could be monopolized. So somebody called Robert Brunhuber says um, in the early 1900s that uh, newspapers try to intoxicate the public uh, like a schnapps distillery. And there are ways in which what Habermas says in the early 1960s about monopolization actually builds on that really 60-year tradition by that point. So I really wanted to, to give those who are intellectual historians of, of people like Habermas or Weber a very different perspective on why they're interested in communications and what's the world in, in which that was happening for them and seemed like a very natural thing to write about. But why were German intellectuals so interested in this question? Was it uh, sort of a consequence of their... Um, sort of like secondary status in the world system uh, and especially like the world communication system? Yeah, I think that's that's quite a large part of it. So the point, one of the points of the first chapter of this book is really to show that across the political spectrum, uh, not just academics, but also journalists, politicians and industrialists are all really interested in thinking about news as a way to achieve broader political, economic, 
cultural goals. And so these academics that I talk about are, are part of this much broader interest in communications. And I think one of the reasons for that is, in, is indeed, as you point out, that that sense of a place that wishes to be a great power, <laughs> but mm-hmm. is not quite yet. And even those who are concerned about that still see news as an integral part of trying to achieve those goals, whereas it's not necessarily the case of, of those who are in Britain who are, some intellectuals are certainly interested in it, but not to the same extent. So I would say there are some people, for example, like Norman Angel in the UK prior to World War One. He writes, of course, the very famous book, The, the Great Illusion. And that is often remembered as a book where he talks about how the economic and financial intertwinings of the world will mean that human beings will see that war is irrational and won't undertake it. And what's often misunderstood is that actually um, Angel was talking about communications and finance. So he, he says the telegraph and the bank, it will be those two things that together render war impossible. But of course, he'll, he'll turn out to be wrong. But but we have to we, we have to rescue, I think, um, oh. the fact that there are actually quite a lot of thinkers in multiple countries who see the role of communications a lot more than historians have when they look back on those people. But I would say there's something particular about the number of German academics who invest in this. And a lot of them are also um, sociologists. So this has a lot to do with the strength of German academia and particularly of German sociology at this point, which becomes invested in a broader set of questions. So a lot of the intellectuals that I'm looking at are actually sociologists in in different ways. And they inspire many of the American sociologists. So for example, Robert Park, who's a a famous urban uh, sociologist, he will come back and in the early 1920s argue that we need to write a natural history of the newspaper it's something akin to sort of the potato bug. And he draws a lot of those ideas from having studied abroad in Germany. Hmm. And so another sort of class of people, uh, another class of elites that um, are um, coming out of this, um, this context in which um, you know, Germany wants to establish itself as a world power um, through the press uh, is government officials. Um, and so government officials in the Weimar period, they see... In, like uh, the like state influence of the press, state regulation of the press, um, uh, and uh, state influence of communication infrastructures as something that's almost essential to sustaining democracy. Uh, and this obviously, um, you know, th- something that you show in your book um, uh, really, really well is how this actually um, has um, an ironic uh, end with the, um, the, the Nazi takeover in 1933. But before we get there, can you just walk listeners through why Weimar officials saw state control um, as a means to save democracy? Um, and what ways did they try to shape information, um, uh, you know, especially with, the, um, uh, with economic information through the SWIFT service? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give a, a sort of broad sketch and then I'll specifically answer your question. So one major intervention that I'm trying to make with this book is exactly something that you implicitly point to, which is that often we would think about attitudes towards media as being tied to a certain form of politics. So authoritarian regimes will deal with media in X way, democratic regimes in Y way, semi-authoritarian, semi-democratic in Z way. And there's a a lot of research on uh, comparative media systems that will lead us to believe that that's how things work. But one of the major points that I show in this book by looking specifically at news agencies, the firm, 
and the technology of wireless is that actually attitudes and even subsidies often persist across those classic political divides. So it actually questions some of the really sort of basic assumptions of the way that comparative media systems literature functions. And I think a lot of the assumptions that historians have about the relationship between media and democracy as well. Okay, so within the the Weimar period, when uh, in 1918, we have the emergence of a German democracy, there are many parts of the imperial bureaucracy that continue, and a lot of excellent historians have traced that. Uh, One part that also continues, though, is the subsidy of news agencies and the belief in wireless and then later radio as a way to achieve broader geopolitical and economic goals. So in one of the chapters of the book, I look at the ways in which, in fact, this becomes really key from the perspective of um, state bureaucrats, particularly a man called Hans von Friedel, it becomes key to preserving democracy. So Hans von Friedel had, before the war, worked for Telefunken, for the major wireless company. After the war, he becomes a bureaucrat, and he's involved in setting up the the German radio system. And he is very much influenced in setting this up by the history of one news agency called Eierdienst, or Swift Service, uh, which provides financial news. And what he believes is that this is extremely problematic because some banks have access to wireless receivers, so they are hearing news about currency exchanges and so on and so forth before other people. And he believes that these banks are then speculating, which is worsening the inflation that the early Weimar Republic is experiencing. And he believes, in fact, you need to have state control over wireless receivers and one news agency that's then delivering financial news to all of these various participants simultaneously, because that will dampen speculation and therefore prevent raging inflation. So this is the initial state intervention. Of course, it doesn't, it doesn't work and there is hyperinflation. Uh, so that doesn't end up working out. One of the many examples where the hopes of communication don't end up really playing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that really supplies the groundwork for the way that Riedel thinks about the creation of a spoken radio system in Germany, that there should be some state supervision. And as time goes on and the Weimar Republic becomes more and more febrile, There are multiple reforms of the radio system in 1926 and 1932 that create more state supervision of content. And that is done by Priedel, who's a committed Democrat, with the idea that of state supervision of uh, news and of content that will prevent the population from becoming more restive. He's fearful that if people hear about uprisings or what have you, it will spur more violence. So state supervision will be a way to try and preserve democracy. But ironically, of course, what that means is when the Nazis come into power, they have much more control over the ability to disseminate news and to control content and shape it than they would have done if Friedel had left more of it in private hands. So Joseph Goebbels says at a radio conference in August 1933, uh, we could never have come to power and held it like we have without the airplane and the radio. And this quotation is often misunderstood because um, people writing about contemporary politics will say, oh, look, the Nazis came to power because of the radio. But it's actually, the quotation is a parallelism. The airplane helps them come to power because it makes Hitler seem very modern because he jets around everywhere in the airplane, um, but they can hold power, they believe, because of their control over radio. So that's what I try to show in this chapter, which is chapter four, is that, that terrible irony of what happens to Hans von Bredel, who actually ends up then being imprisoned because he resigns and, and doesn't want his employees to be sacked. He wants to preserve democracy, and he ironically lays the, the groundwork for the Nazis to control radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really want to uh, talk more about that. But before we get there, um, sort of someone who stands in opposition to um, Bredel is uh, Alfred Hugenberg. 
um, and his uh, right-wing media empire. And while reading some of the latter chapters, I couldn't help but think that uh, Hugenberg was kind of like a, a Weimar Germany Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he just like, he, he, um, uh, he's in control of this like vast media empire that's vertically integrated, that has, um, you know, uh, correspondence um, in other parts of the world and um, is distributing uh, a very right-wing slanted news. So who was Hugenberg? What did he do? And what did he want? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> one thing I'll say is that it, indeed it's true that in this book you can see a lot of parallels, but I deliberately in the book don't draw them because I think it's important for history to stand on its own. And if people want to make uh, comparisons, they they can feel free to do so, though I would add that there are certainly differences between uh, Rupert Murdoch and Alfred Hugenberg. Just just one is is like really quite simply that that Murdoch owns a a really multinational empire, right? Whereas Hugenberg is very much focused on uh, Germany. Um, but anyway, uh, so Hugenberg, initially, he he actually doesn't begin in media at all. He's briefly a bureaucrat in um, the sort of eastern lands of Prussia. And then he ends up getting involved in coal and steel, more in the Rhineland, so the west of Germany. And he starts to become interested, like some other fellow industrialists from the early 20th century onwards, in using media to achieve broader uh, political and economic goals. So he's quite interested in, in how one could use media and dissemination of news from Germany to increase foreign trade and foreign exports for Germans, particularly to Latin America. But he's also interested in using newspapers within Germany to perhaps persuade Germans of a more uh, right-wing point of view. So he begins with some other industrialists, by, they buy a newspaper, and they actually try to dictate on the article level what should be written and what should be said. Uh, this does not work well. The newspaper just plummets in subscription. It's a, a Munich newspaper. And so Hugenberg starts to engage in building his uh, vertically integrated media empire. And it's one in which then he doesn't dictate on the, um, on the article level at all what should be written. But he uses multiple business techniques to push those businesses towards certain points of view. Uh, so one is that his news agency, Telegrafenunion or Telegraph Union, those who work for it in the Weimar period have to sign a contract which says that they will produce news on a national basis. And so I show in the book some cases where um, news is actually falsified. And I, I can prove from the original articles they take to the newspaper articles they actually end up. Uh, supplying that they do actually falsify news to make it more. Do you have an example that you could share? Mm, yeah. So there's one, for example, where they um, falsify an assassination attempt of someone within the Soviet Union <laughs> in an attempt, um, perhaps coincidentally, at the same time as uh, the Weimar Republic is trying to sign a trade treaty with the Soviet Union. And this falsification actually nearly ends up uh, undermining the signing of this treaty because the Soviet Union is so incensed that the Weimar government can't stop the spread of this um, falsified news about an assassination attempt. So that's that's one example in the mid-1920s. And there are quite a few others. They also falsify an assassination attempt from Spain, um, several other things that try to talk about how um, jingoistic Poland is, um, is another favorite topic. So a lot of this news is trying to push for a sort of nationalist, autarkic vision of Germany, one that is surrounded by jingoist countries that, that want to encroach on Germany's freedom. So that's one, one way in which uh, what he's doing functions. And the second is through that vertically integrated business empire. And what he can do is cross-subsidize various parts of it. So for example, um, his news agency, Telegraph Union, is consistently the, the biggest, uh, the one that makes the biggest losses. 
but it's cross-subsidized by the other parts of what he's doing. And then after hyperinflation in 1923, what he does is, is actually a, um, the companies approach a bunch of provincial newspapers that were otherwise going to shut down. Um, Hugenberg has several banks, offers loans to these provincial newspapers to keep them afloat. But the condition of those loans is that they must subscribe to his news agency, Telegraph Union. So this is just to give a couple of examples of how this functions. And it's another one of the major points of the book is that sometimes this is not happening on the individual level of articles. It's happening through business and general direction. And so that's a lot of what Hugenberg is doing. Um, he's trying really in the 20s and 30s to push for a particular political vision. He's involved in one party called the DNVP. Uh, he actually becomes its head from 1928 until the early 1930s. Though ironically, what ends up happening is not that that increases at all support for his political party. In fact, the support halves during his tenure as head from 14% to 7%. And what really happens, um, other historians like Corey Ross as well have argued, is that he ends up laying the groundwork not for his vision of right-wing nationalism, but for the further right vision of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's, he seems to be really important in just um, shifting the Overton window, regardless of his own, um, you know, electoral losses. So we're now finally getting to the Nazis. Uh, and uh, your book um, takes issue with some of the, uh, the common narratives of how Nazis took control of um, radio. You already um, mentioned the quote by Joseph Goebbels. Um, can you just like specify what is wrong with this uh, common narrative of sort of like um, discontinuity between um, Weimar Germany and Nazi Germany as it relates to um, communications? Mm. So there are, there are a couple of things. One is that there, there needs to be a sort of recognition of the, the domestic versus the international. So quite often there have just been fantastic books written about the, the domestic and Nazi control of, of media domestically, but that haven't recognized the ways in which there's a differentiation of strategy between um, what's happening domestically versus what is happening internationally. Um, the second is that that classic narrative of break, whereas in fact, um, there are certainly continuities in the use of technology and uh, the use of news agencies, even if the content changes quite dramatically. So often, it's almost as if the, the Nazi control of radio and disseminating attempts to disseminate Nazi radio around the world just come ex novo from absolutely nowhere. And what I'm showing is they actually build on a much longer infrastructure and longer held beliefs about um, the power of media and the power of disseminating through radio or wireless in particular. And then thirdly is, like with the whole of the book, the, the attempt to concentrate on the networks behind the news as well. So that some of what the Nazis are doing as well is not necessarily a desire for those who are newspaper readers to know that the news is from Germany, but rather to shape their worldview by supplying that particular type of news. So you can see through the ways in which um, German news agencies like Transocean partner with other news agencies on the ground. So in Latin America, for example, um, they co-found something called Agencia Brasileira in Brazil. So those who were reading the news in Brazil would have had no idea the stuff was from Germany. And that was sometimes the point. So I say those are three things that that I'm trying to do with the, the portion on the Nazi mm -hmm. period. And you do also say that the Nazis transformed the news landscape of Germany. Um, so what was what was uh, new about the Nazi use of media? Yeah, so there's quite a few things. Uh, let me just talk about a couple. One is the 
regulatory framework is just completely different. So really, the the idea is to remove people like Hugenberg, and there are a couple of others, um, Willy Munzenberg, who was a communist, um, and then the major newspaper owning firms, which are owned by by Jews, liberal Jews, like like Mossa and so on, and and so on. So the regulatory framework changes extremely quickly so that uh, you're only allowed to own one newspaper. Um, journalists now have to have certain types of training. Obviously, all the sort of common narratives about the, the sorts of people who are rapidly excluded from newspapers and news agencies hold to a large extent. So that really changes the, the control of news, um, much more censorship. And news agencies themselves are also transformed. So the Long-standing semi-official news agency that I talked about a while ago, Volkstegrafisches Büro, is merged with Hungberg's news agency Telegraph Union to create what is called um, Deutsches Nachrichtenbüro or German News Office and um, the DNB. And that, in its domestic news supply, is really very different because most of the news that's supplying is actually for Nazi officials in the Nazi state rather than directly being sent to newspapers. And newspapers are given much more direction as to what they are and aren't allowed to publish. So it's obviously a much more controlled, censored environment shot through with anti-Semitism, racism, jingoism, all the stuff that we might expect. Um, But where it is somewhat different is in the international sphere, where the Nazis realized quite quickly that people are not very interested in the Volksbeobachter, the Nazi newspaper. And that there's actually explicit reflection on the fact that you can't censor news that you're sending from Germany outside as much as you do the stuff for domestic consumption, because people do have access to other sources of news. And so there is a somewhat different, um, there's still very much a take that is uh, biased towards the Nazis, obviously, but it is a somewhat different version of news that is sent out. And so I detail really in the last chapter of the book, um, I take the history of one news agency called Transocean that's founded just before World War One, and I take it all the way through to the end of World War Two, and show how the Nazis try to use this news agency, how they pump more money into it, and the sorts of ways in which they try and measure its success. And then, as far as we know, how much of that stuff is actually printed? What are people really interested in reading? And what are the reactions of Brits, French, uh, Americans, and so on and so forth to what the Nazis are trying to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk uh, a little bit more about um, Transocean. Um, uh, I found that, that final chapter really interesting because you really start to see this um, geography uh, um, that uh, we were talking about earlier, um, uh, especially in how um, Transocean ends up in places that the Nazis themselves couldn't actually reach. Um, and it was, I mean, you have this one story which just blew me away uh, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, um, I believe in the last chapter, about how uh, Americans learned of the D-Day invasion um, from Transocean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, this is, this, this is kind of like an echo of um, uh, your, your very first paper on communications uh, um, with uh, uh, Agent Savaz. So, yeah, th- th- there's just a lot going on in this chapter, and we'd love to um, chat more about it. So how, how does... Transocean actually fit into Nazi foreign policy? Where was it operating? Um, and what did it actually accomplish? Mm, oh, they're all really good questions. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so, I sometimes think I could have written a whole book just about Transocean because it's just extraordinary when you start digging all of the different places that it was and how many reactions there are to it. So, so that chapter really tries to do a lot in just one chapter to really show the 
the number of people who are reacting to it. So um, it's uh, it begins in 1913, um, co-founded by political and economic elites who want to use this news agency that's not in the cartel to disseminate news from Germany around the world to wherever they want to send it to. And, and I really want to emphasize that this is a very high level group of people. So they meet, uh, their board meetings are in the Hotel Adlon, which is the fanciest hotel you can think of in Berlin. It's right next to the Brandenburg Gate. Um, the board members include everyone from Gustav Stresemann, who will go on to be the Weimar Republic's most famous foreign minister, briefly chancellor, to Hjalmar Schacht, who will end up becoming very famous for being, you know, Nazi, a Nazi banker slash uh, economics minister. So there's really just very, very high level people involved from the beginning. Um, the industrialists split quite quickly, and then it becomes fully subsidized by um, various German governments, uh, mainly through the foreign office, because actually a lot of, um, through the quirks of the way that uh, German ministries function, a lot of the press stuff is in fact located in the foreign office. So one of the other things I really had to do for this book is understand exactly how German bureaucracy functioned. And I would really advise people who are going into archives to do the same, because it really helped me a great deal. So Transocean then is is really massively subsidized, mostly by the Foreign Office, um, and in the Nazi period will be subsidized much more than it ever was uh, before. And then let me come to the sort of second question that you ask, which is how do we measure its success if we can at all? And it's a really important and very difficult question to answer because one of the things that we often don't have is how did readers react to this news? So one way to try and trace it instead is what are the ways in which elites try to measure success? And that changes quite dramatically over the period that I'm discussing. So I talk about that a little bit in the chapter as well. So it goes from this very sort of classic way, which is to collect newspaper clippings of who is writing about said things. So that's the early 1920s. Famous press baron in Britain, Lord Northcliffe, gets very exercised about Transocean news that's on a ship that he's taking to um, on his round-the-world tour. So the Germans collect all these newspaper clippings and see that as evidence that Transocean is affecting the British and the way that the British think about uh, radio and about Germany. And then into the 1930s, 1940s, uh, the Nazis really start to use numbers and statistics. So they start counting how many Chinese characters of Transocean News is being printed in uh, Shanghai or other Chinese cities, and they see that as a proxy for influence. So in other words, they see published opinion as a measure of public opinion. Um, And the way that then I go uh, above that is then to see how to actually um, various ministries in Britain, France, um, United States, etc., actually react to Transocean. So we can see that um, the British uh, Secret Service is extremely exercised about Transocean. So this will go all the way up to um, the Foreign Secretary in the late 1930s, Anthony Eden, to report on how even in South Africa, actually Reuters is picking up Transocean news. So people in South Africa are reading it. And then in the United States, uh, J. Edgar Hoover picks up on Transocean because he comes to believe that it's a cover-up for the largest Nazi spy ring in Latin America. So he ends up uh, putting Transocean on trial. And if you want to know what ends up happening, you'll have to read the chapter of the book. But it's just to give just an example of these many, many wide-ranging reactions to this news agency, which aren't necessarily so much about the newspaper readers, um, because as I said, often they may not have even known they were reading Transocean news, but are about how other uh, political elites in in different countries believed this news was influencing other people. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, and I think that is a, a lovely segue into sort of our contemporary 
issues in relation to communications and information and the news. Um, so, and I know this is something that you care deeply about um, with your, um, you know, more like contemporary and policy related work. But your book does not offer what you call easy lessons. Um, it um, provides uh, more, again, what you write, cautionary tales. Uh, um, so how should this uh, history of Germany and communications in the first half of the 20th century inform these uh, more contemporary debates about things like the internet or state propaganda or social media um, and other uh, issues related to communication. Mm. Yeah, I had to rewrite the conclusion of this book about 25 gazillion times. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the present just keeps on moving. Yeah, I like to say the present caught up with history. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I used to have an epilogue version, but anyway, the present kept shifting. So I thought, no, it's actually much more important to talk about these, these broader cautionary tales, because genuinely that there isn't a simple parallel that we can draw from history to the present, uh, as we as historians already know. So I think there are a couple of, you know, broader things that, that I really try to talk about when I when I talk to policymakers or others and, and talk about this history. Um, so let me just try, I'll just give you three of them. Uh, one is to be really cautious about the unintended consequences of policy regulation. And the Hans von Friedel story is a very good example of somebody with the best intentions in the 10 to 15 year purview, what he ended up doing so ironically ends up undermining democracy. So really thinking through unintended consequences, not just in the 10-month run, but the 10-year run is really important. Um, the second is a recognition that these problems are not unprecedented. And it, it does, I think, do historians, but, but also our own uh, analytical ability, a great disservice if we claim that everything that is happening on the internet has simply no precedent. And so we cannot look to history as a way of thinking through some of these problems. Certainly some aspects of the internet that the rapid growth, the ability to reach so many billions of people instantaneously does have some unprecedented elements, but there are some bits that are very precedented. So for example, the control of a small number of companies that end up determining what it is we see on social media is to me actually really quite akin in astonishing ways to the control of news agencies over what people could read in their daily newspaper and that push to think about the networks behind the news. So, so really it's important, I think, for us to understand and think through uh, what is precedented, to coin a word, rather than <laughs> unprecedented. Um, and then I think the, the third thing is that this is really a, a book that shows us that communications cannot solve everything. and to place too much faith or too much attention on trying to, quote unquote, fix communications as a way to fix all problems can lead us quite far astray. Because a lot of what I show in the book is the way that attempts to communicate news from Germany, and I use the word irony a lot in this podcast, don't end up working out in the ways that people expect. And, and so I sometimes worry that I think we need to focus on questions of policy and regulation in social media. It's not to say that we shouldn't, but it shouldn't be a distraction from the other pressing problems of our society, which simply cannot be papered over through better PR strategies. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And so you're only as good as your next gig, as they say. So uh, what are you working on right now? Yeah. So I have a, another project on the history of health communications. So how is it that in the history of health and particularly um, epidemic management, information and statistics became as critical to trying to prevent epidemics as medical treatments themselves? So I have an article actually coming out in uh, the June issue of the American Historical Review, oh, which, is about, um, which is about how 
in the League of Nations period, we get the first world epidemiological intelligence system. And so I'm showing, again, really looking at, at concrete infrastructures, how is it that the League is able to develop this when states have been trying to coordinate on information since the mid-19th century. And it really shows an overlap between what the League is purportedly calling and thinking about as a really neutral provision of information and the imperial and other state incentives to actually cooperate in this system. Wonderful. Well, I will look out for the article and uh, whatever other projects uh, emerge from it. And I want to thank you, Heidi, for joining me today. It was a real pleasure reading your book and uh, as well discussing your book. Thanks so much for having me, Dexter. Thanks for the excellent questions. Of course. And uh, I want to thank you for listening to New Books in History.